Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Using the opportunity, even amid COVID, to still go to family and spend it with family, and it's a good time. It's a good time to spend with family. However... For us that are left behind, this is a good time and a good space to be together. There's no other place there that we want to be at this morning than to celebrate, than to think about not just the death of Jesus on the cross on Friday, but specifically this morning, Resurrection Sunday. It is a joyous occasion, and I'm see, sure you guys can see behind me. This morning, I want to speak about the joy of the resurrection. I don't know about you, even as I was thinking about this this morning and uh, preaching and, and, and what we would be doing, I thought to myself, you normally have those messages where you think, oh, I wish that guy was in the service. He should have heard this. This is actually for him. This morning, I feel like it's, it's good that I'm in the service because I need to hear this this morning. And I don't know about you guys, if there's one thing that we need in this difficult time or in trying times is to have lasting joy. And we're going to chat a little bit about that, how that's different from just being happy. But specifically this morning, we want to journey in how the resurrection of Christ creates an immense joy in the Christian. I love how Peter says it, this unspeakable joy filled with glory. And so we pray for that this morning. We already prayed, maybe just to help and say, why are we praying so much in the service? Well, we think prayer is a good thing. So one time I praise in the beginning to kind of focus our hearts and our minds for the service as we prepare for songs. Yanni led us in corporate prayer. That is us as a church praying with one another, for one another, praying to God. And lastly, I'm going to pray now as well. As we hear the words of God, that our hearts would not be hardened, but rather that we would be softened by the Spirit so that we can not just hear the words, but actually react and change in the words of God. And so this isn't even in the notes, but it's an important point. In the Old Testament, when people came close to God, they were always changed in some form or matter. Jacob wrestled with God and he had a limp for the rest of his life. Moses went and got close to God and his face shone. Every time people come into contact with God, other one or two things happened. One, their hearts either softened or two, like Pharaoh, their hearts were hardened. And so that's why we pray. We pray that we would not come into contact with God this morning and hear his words and not have our hearts softened because your heart can't stay the same when you come into contact with God. It's either going to be hardened or it's going to be softened this morning. And so let's pray for the word of God. Father, we pray for this morning. We pray against a hardness of heart. Father, we pray for grace because we know, left to our own devices, that we will actually just... Um, seek our own will, our own desires, selfish ambitions and reasons. Rather, what we want to do is we want to lay those things at the door, not just our desires, but also our anxieties, the things that keep us up at night, that keeps our minds busy. Thinking in a time like this where vocationally there's a lot of stress, financially there's a lot of stress, even thinking of the universities and students struggling with debt, or those that need to study and find a new rhythm in this difficult time. So many things that can occupy our minds and our hearts, but we pray this morning 
that everything would fall into the right order, that yes, those things are important, but ultimately less important than the one glorious truth that we want to look and think about this morning. And that is just the ultimate reality of Jesus being resurrected from the grave. And so we thank you that we don't have to wonder about these things, that you've made it clear in your scriptures. We pray that you would um, yeah, give us clear mind of thinking and may your spirit work in us for your glory and our benefit. Amen. This morning, as we're talking about joy, it's actually an interesting topic because here's the thing. It is something that everyone wants. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants joy. Yet, it's a funny thing, joy. If you purely focus on obtaining joy, obtaining happiness, you never seem to get it. Trying to make yourself simply happy normally has the adverse effect of actually <laughs> taking happiness away from you and getting more heartache. Whether it's through trying to get happiness through materialism, relationships, or even success, the pursuit of happiness will and can eventually lead to a road of brokenness, ironically. What is interesting, though, is that when joy is not the end goal within itself, not the total focus of what you're giving your life for, it is often produced as a byproduct of living for something greater than yourself. And a marriage is a great relationship of it, or a great example of this. If you simply live for yourself within any marriage relationship, just doing whatever makes you happy, focusing on yourself, you will ultimately rob yourself of joy because that's not how a marriage relationship works. Or rather, it's not how it's supposed to work. Rather, the relationship should, focus, should be focused on the other person. How can I serve and love my spouse? How can I make them happy? How can I sacrifice? How can I pursue them? How can I serve them? And ironically, when you live in this way, not focused on your own happiness, you will get a healthy relationship. And as a byproduct of that healthy relationship, your life will be filled with joy. Happy wife, happy life, anyone? <laughs> it is true, but it's, it's interesting. So joy can't be the goal within itself. And so when we're speaking about joy, we're talking about something greater than just the fleeting emotion. I'm not talking about we're feeling happy this morning. I'm talking about that deep-seated peace that reigns over your life that you're feeling and that is characterized by joy. And so there's a tension that exists if we want to find joy or enjoy joy, that's interesting, in our lives. It means that we need to live for something greater than ourselves and you need to know why you're living for that and how you should be living for that. You need to be able and willing to sacrifice continually for that. And this should not be forced, otherwise if it's forced and not something that comes natural, joy won't be produced. And this is because joy must be something that flows from a heart captured by something larger than yourself. And this is best captured or best illustrated, I believe. If you want a life that is characterized by joy, if you want something that is deep-seated and meaningful that you can leave a legacy for, it is ultimately captured in the life of the Christian. We are living for a glorious and everlasting purpose. And nowhere is that glorious truth more exemplified than in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The more and the better we understand this truth, and this reality, we won't just be convinced to live differently, but we will be people with hope as we discussed last week and how that hope changes us. But more than that, we will be people 
with joy. And that's what this morning's passage is all about. And I don't know about you, that's not always true of my life. And so I need to hear this morning's lesson. I truly want to be characterized not as someone that's always happy, but that someone whose speech and whose life is seasoned with joy. And so, going to our text today in First Peter, it's a one-off sermon series, and so we're only spending today in Peter, and next week we'll uh, continue in our series in Thessalonians. Uh, but Peter was addressing not just one church, but actually a collection of churches, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Peter collectively calls all these Christians the elect exiles. And the reason that he calls them this is because they've been enduring active persecution and hard times. Things haven't been lacquer. It's been seriously tough. And so the theme of the letter that, uh, that Peter was writing towards them is one of endure, stand strong. This is not your final destination. This is not your home. Rather, you should live differently in these trying times. You should live as though this is not your permanent home address. You should live as the elect exiles. And so he starts this letter. And he sets up the rest of the letter, how he's going to convince them to live differently in a world that you will encounter persecution and the world that you will encounter hard times. And the way that he convinces them, the way that he starts and motivates them in this letter is ironically, or not ironically, but he goes to one central focal point to help them, the resurrection of Christ. He does it by reminding them that the resurrection of Jesus and the reason why Jesus was resurrected ultimately should cause joy and peace amongst our suffering. And so he goes to two reasons. Two reasons why he reminds them, rejoice always, rejoice in this. The reasons why the resurrection should cause joy in the Christian amidst our external circumstances. And those two reasons are that the resurrection creates a new reality. And secondly, the resurrection sustains a new reality. So just those two things that we're going to spend our time on. And so I'm going to read again verse 3 for us. should be on the board. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so after Peter's greeting in this letter, he starts with an astonishing declaration that the Christians are born again to a living hope by God through what? How are they born again? How did they produce new life? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's Jesus' resurrection that is the medium through which we are born again to a living hope. The question, of course, is why? Why specifically is it the resurrection and not any other part of Jesus' ministry that has caused us to be born again to a living hope? Why is the resurrection the crucial ingredient for eternal life? And to understand this, we need a bit of biblical theology. And so just hang on as we're going to travel through the whole Bible, which should be done about three or four hours. But um, it is Easter, so it's fine. No? Okay. So we turn to the beginning of the story. I told you we're going to go through the whole Bible. <laughs> the world as we know it... Um, is not the world as it was. God created the universe and everything in it. And the one characteristic or the one 
uh, describe that he gave for it is that the world and everything was created good. As God created everything, everything was working and it was as it was, as it was supposed to be. Isn't that great? <laughs> there was no death, no separation from God. Man and God were in good relationship and as part of God's good creation, he gave his will to mankind, his blueprint for the way that we should not only live in this world but also enjoy this world with him as the center and focal point. However, things unfortunately didn't stay rosy colored. Our forefathers in Adam and Eve rebelled against God and his good rule and as a result, death, and sin and decay entered into our reality. You see, friends, it's not that God actually wants bad things to happen to good people, but rather it was our own rebellion that caused this world to be broken. Sin affected everything. It is the cancer that influenced the physical reality in our own beings as well. Creation itself has been infected with brokenness that is apparent in our own souls. And Paul describes it this way in Romans 8. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, friends, this world is still in bondage to corruption. This is still the true reality of what we're living in. Things decay and die. Things aren't as they are supposed to be. And this broken reality where sin entered our world, death reigns supreme. Nothing on this earth will escape the eventual clutches of time, decay, and death. And if you don't believe me, just buy a house and try to fix it up. It, you never get in front. Things just break. Things work against you. Who, who is, one of you guys were doing with computers. Now, oh, good luck, my friend. If you don't think that sin exists, try and fix a computer. <laughs> You'll always have a job. And we can try and celebrate many achievements by athletes who try and hold off this process off. We can try and make further advances in technology to lengthen our lives. But the fact of the matter is we might be playing stall tactics. But we are delaying the inevitable. The time, death, and decay will have the upper hand. And we see this throughout biblical history. It's not just true of us materially and physically, but that's just a manifestation of the brokenness in our souls as well. God reached out to mankind through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Moses, through the prophets, through his law, trying to draw us back into relationship with him. The problem is God's chosen people just aren't able to please God, to trust God completely, to be rid of the effects of sin. We somehow still, because, of, because we're so infected with sin, run after small gods, demigods, false gods, rather than trust in the one true God. And so we're almost doomed, unable to believe, unable to get close to this holy, perfect God. And I hope you feel almost the doom and gloom in this situation, because it was super gloomy. It was into this dark and hopeless reality that we actually see Jesus step in. This is where we turn a corner this weekend. 
we're not just celebrating the forgiveness of sins and the clothing of ourselves with righteousness or the righteousness of Christ, but when Christ was raised from the dead, he defeated our mortal enemy, death. And it's not just that he defeated death, but he started to reverse the effects of the curse that was introduced in Genesis 2 and 3. He brought the cure for the infection. And so what we see with the resurrection is that the resurrection, at first God created the world and then we see death and destruction reign throughout the Old Testament. The resurrection recreates. The resurrection is recreating a new reality. And a lot of us know about this and we think that it's somehow in the distant future. But when we start and we put our trust in Christ, that's already created within ourselves. In us, Christ is recreating, making a new reality. His new kingdoms, the new kingdom, the new heaven and earth, it starts in us. It's already within us. This monumental shift is what changes everything that we know and believe. And so Romans 5 describes it in this way, that as death and sin entered into the world through one man, now life and justification came through Jesus. His resurrection created a new reality and it made it, made it possible for us to enter into that reality. And that's our inheritance. That is what Peter is describing, this imperishable, undefiled inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. The one that we're already forming a part of. It's not just a future reality. As you given a new family name, the moment you put your hope and trust in Christ, you're giving it a new family name and a new reality of who you are. Before you knew Christ, you were defined by what you did or what you had. You were defined by your achievements and what you could do right. And this is a scary thought because none of us are where we want to be right now. None of us would want to say, well, where do you see yourselves in five years? You say, well, I'm good. I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. I think I'm the person that I'm supposed to be. We all kind of know intuitively that we're a work in process. We all have this future version of ourselves or maybe a virtual version of ourselves who we want to be, but we never quite measure up. The recreation of the resurrection means that God started something new in you. And so even though we act like someone else and we try to be that person, we are not that person. There is a new creation in you and God is busy expanding the work that he started in you. And friends, here's the good promise as well. The new work, the new creation he started in you, he will bring into completion. He will finish the work that he started in you. This reality, this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power, being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Not inaugurated in the last time, to be revealed in the last time. And so why is that good news for us this morning? Why should that fill you with joy? Well, for one thing, I know that we don't want to be defined by the thing, by our worst mistakes. But I want to take you to another guy. Think about the legacy that, you'll leave, that you will live or leave on earth. Uh, Peter the disciple, his last act and encounter with Christ was him denying Christ. Can you imagine? That was the last thing that he did for Christ 
Christ looked at him, saw him, and then Jesus died. Can you imagine the thoughts that was going through Peter's mind Friday evening into Saturday, Saturday evening? That's who I am. I'm the man who denied Christ. There's never going to be an opportunity for me to rework the wrongs that I did. Peter must have been the most depressed person on earth. I can't imagine being in his shoes and thinking, that's my last act to the living God. And then, on Resurrection Sunday, what are the words that Jesus spoke to the ladies, to the woman at the grave? Go tell my disciples and Peter that I am risen. What is Jesus communicating through that? And remember, this is Peter writing this letter now, getting goosebumps. As Jesus telling Peter, theologically in that, you will not be defined by your last mistake. You are not defined by what you've done, by the sin, and the ways that you've fallen short. Rather, you being commissioned again, you giving a second chance to live for something different through the resurrection of Christ. Before that, there was no way of getting back to God. But it's in Christ's resurrection where we have been given a new reality. And so no matter who you are this morning, no matter how badly you've messed up or tried to live up, know that what the resurrection means for us this morning is that Christ finds you where you're at. He comes constantly, daily on a rescue mission to pull us back to him. Whether you're a Christian or not, Never too far gone for God or for Jesus to come and find you where you're at. I've had to wrestle with this this week as I'm just disappointed, thinking that I'm better than I'm actually supposed to be and having to come to grips again that even in my disappointments, in my mistakes, in my failures, Christ is there. And he tells them, go tell Rankies that I am risen. There is hope, there's life, there's relationship. And friends, it's in those moments, in our darkest moments of doom and gloom, as we reflect on that truth, that our best is never good enough, but our worst is never so bad that we're removed from him, that it produces joy. How good it is that Christ has not only died for me, but that was raised from the dead so that I'm not defined by the mistakes or by death. Christian, rejoice this morning because the resurrection creates a new reality, creates a new inheritance that is kept for us. Secondly, point two, the resurrection not only creates a new reality in us, it also sustains a new reality in us. Read with me verses six to nine. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the good news this morning is, you know, the resurrection 
is not only a reality that will be revealed one day in the future, but it is also a reality in the way that we live every day. It changes the way that we live every day. It's not just something that we look for the future, but even as we discussed last week, it is the future hope that influences the way that we live today. And so make no mistake, we are involved with the battle. This world is marked by sufferings and trials. Even though Christ has created this new reality for us, a part of it is still being kept for when he is coming, and the second part of it is being revealed in us, but every other sphere of life, we will encounter resistance. We will still encounter sin in our own lives. It's going to make it tough for us. We're going to encounter other people's sin in our lives. It's going to bring persecution. It's just going to be tough. We live in a fallen world of work, injustice, and natural disasters, and famine, and epidemics. We live from persecution from people and Satan himself. So in every other sphere, it's going to be an uphill battle. And it's going to be really difficult. And all this while, as we are encountering persecution, we're trying to live for the glory of God and not just live for ourselves. If there was no resurrection, then we had no future reality and we had no hope. Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning no afterlife, we are of all people to be most pitied. Because it's tough, it's tough out there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus has defeated death, it means that there is a future hope. And that these trials and tribulations won't have the last and final say. They don't control our futures. They don't control our roads or the purposes that we're on. And the way that Peter describes it is that instead of sufferings destroying us, because we're in Christ and because we have a future hope, it now becomes something different entirely. Our trials and tribulations, Paul or Peter uses the imagery of a furnace where you have fire that normally destroys something, it is now used to purify gold as it burns away all the impurities. I think it's called the dross. All the dross gets burned away by this furnace. And so even then, the pure gold won't last forever and is perishable, not so with our faith. Our faith, more precious than gold, as it is purified by trials and sufferings, it will keep us until Jesus returns. Without hope and faith, the sufferings and trials of this world would have made or would have maybe destroyed us, make us hopeless. And God in his infinite wisdom has changed the nature of our suffering because of the resurrection. The resurrection produces hope and hope creates faith in Jesus. And as we live in the furnace of life and experiences, the fiery trails of everyday life, it has the opposite effect of what we might think. Instead of destroying us, it is actually purifying our faith. And how does it do this? Well, in difficult times, what happens is when the heat is really on and things are going really tough, it reveals what we're trusting in. And so we know this to be true, even though most of us would probably call ourselves Christians. We know that even though we do believe in God and do, we do want to trust in God and we do want to rely on Him for everything that we hope and dream for, we've got still a lot of demigods, a lot of false gods that we trust in as well. 
And we see this. As we are grieved by trials, we see to which demigods we run to. We see where we find our hope and our joy and our security. But as we are grieved by trials, we experience this purifying fire of God. And anything that is not able to keep you is burned away, leaving only the gospel behind. So we have a purer, more undefiled faith that is able to produce more joy in our hearts. Maybe an example of how this happens is um, if you're a Christian, you might be holding on to Jesus, but money is maybe a demigod or a false god, a mini-god that you're also holding on to. And so when this situation arises where the pressure is on, you need finances and suddenly you lose your job and your financial security is taken away. Your false God is exposed. It wasn't able to actually keep you. It wasn't able to actually give everything that you wanted it to give. And so, yes, you might be grieved. Yes, we might be perplexed. Obviously, it's a difficult and a tough situation, and we want to be there for one another. However, in those situations, if you can realize that this was a false God, we're thankful to God for the circumstance that has allowed that to surface. And we want the trial to actually burn away those things that we trust in. The money God is burned in the furnace because he wasn't able to look out for you, but God is still there. God remains. The gospel is still true. God is still your security. He still cares for you. He's not going to turn his back on you. And so the more we see this clearly, the more we hold on just to Christ and not to these false gods. And if we see Christ more clearly, and we experience the acceptance on a deeper level, and the security on a deeper level, our joy will grow. Our joy will increase. How do we know that God is good? Well, every other God, every other demigod, will ask you to bring something to the offering table to sacrifice for them. If you want to live for your job, well, just bring your family and sacrifice them on the table. If you want to live for the God that says, I want to be liked by everyone, well, this God just asks you to come and sacrifice your peace and try and gain other people's acceptance and trust. You'll never be at ease with yourself. Just come and sacrifice that and you'll get it. All these false gods that we trust in, they ask of us to come and sacrifice. Jesus comes and sacrifices himself for us, for the ransom to ransom us from these false gods. Really realizing that we read these words and we start to understand them and so we echo them in the way that Peter says, though you have not seen him, this Christ, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so maybe this morning, and we're almost there, a diagnostic tool for our hearts. As you think about the resurrection this morning, as we ponder about what Jesus not only did, but what he overcame, do you experience joy? Do you experience a deep joy with your walk with Christ? And not just an emotional joy. Remember, we're not just talking about happiness, but a deep security, love, and trust. I needed to wrestle with this question this week. 
And so yes, things do get busy and things do get tough. And yes, the Christian life is a battle, but where's the joy? Is there, if there's absolutely no joy, it might be that your heart has grown cold towards God. It might even be that you've actually never done business with God or come to him and really think or become a Christian. You might think you're a Christian, but if your life is without any joy, then that should be just a warning light on the dashboard. So one thing that I realized this week as I was um, wrestling with this question and also asking myself, well, where's the joy at? I might have realized that I started to use Christianity as a means to an end. I didn't intend for this to happen, but I could see, I could see a pattern in my own life that I want Christ to give me a happy life, a good family and security, rather than me actually chasing and wanting Christ. So I grind to make it happen. I do everything I'm supposed to do so that Jesus will reward me with these things. And what's interesting is the relationship that I then have with Christ becomes one of being a formal relationship, almost a vocational relationship, born out of obligation rather than love. And one thing that's very clear that's missing from a relationship like that, if you've just got a formal relationship with Christ, well, you're gonna hold up your end of the bargain and he'll do the rest. One thing that will absolutely be missing from a relationship like that is joy. And so I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you are in a sweet season where you're enjoying joy and fellowship with Christ. Man, that's good. Continue in that. We don't all have to have to have problems. Don't go looking for a problem. If you're in a good, deep fellowship with God, enjoy that all the more. Celebrate that this morning. Even as we use communion and you look at the cross, celebrate that he is producing that in you. But if that's not you this morning, we can take heart. Our failures, even our misconceptions, in the, even the way that we use Christianity won't have the final say. Resurrection Sunday is the opportunity to once again return to Christ, to gaze upon the beauty of Christ and to be reminded of what he has done on the cross and the empty tomb. We need to be reminded of grace that has been freely poured upon our thirsty souls. Maybe you've never responded or had the opportunity to respond. Today is a good day. Today is a reminder that you don't have to wait for something else. You don't have to wait for a sign. You don't have to wait for someone else to come and invite you to the throne of grace. The final sign that we need is as we look back at the cross and the empty tomb. Do you want a sign? Christ is risen. And so in a moment, we'll be doing communion as a reminder of that, as a physical reminder of Christ, what Christ has done for us. I wanna invite you what the communion does for us. It illustrates or it represents or it reminds us in the way that our old life full of sin and death has been crucified with Christ and buried as we entered into or as we enjoy the bread that was broken on our behalf. And as we enjoy the wine that symbolizes this new covenant with Christ, we remember that we are now defined or redefined by this new relationship with Christ. And so use this opportunity not only to see the gospel, but actually to come to God. Let me pray for us.
Father God, I pray this morning that we would be comforted, yes, by the cross, but that we would be encouraged, full of joy as we look at the empty tomb. Father, we recognize that within ourselves that we are, the depth of our brokenness is still unknown even to ourselves, yet you know this and you have filled us with the peace and grace that is only available at the foot of the cross. And so I pray this morning, Father, that we would be a people that not just serve and love you out of obligation, not just the people that tries to survive this world, but actually in the midst of suffering and persecution, in the midst of the uphill battle, even against our own sin, that we would be people characterized by joy. And Father, this is so difficult because we would have manufactured it ourselves, but we know that joy is a byproduct of just loving you and trusting you. And so we ask, Spirit, to help our wayward hearts as we continually drift as we continually look to the demigods, the false gods to give us what only you can give. Reveal that to us. Reveal that to us in our suffering. Reveal that to us even as we come to you now. And we thank you. We thank you for the message this morning that Christ has risen, not just for the disciples and for Peter, but for the Red Door Church, for everyone that wants to come in and find peace and safety and security they can find it at Jesus. And so we praise you because of that. We want to magnify your name because of that. An inexpressible joy filled with glory. Amen.